Drive to Texas. Keep going. Beyond a foolish wall, you'll find our neighbors. They'll be laughing, dining, playing, and living in a spectacular ancient land. It's a place of wonder, a place of complex social issues that reach far beyond the beaches of Tulum and Cancun. This week's guest ventured south into the heart of Mexico to try her hand at living like a local. And what she found can't be seen from a cruise ship. Welcome to the Get Lost Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Joe Sills, freelance journalist, travel writer, and some would say explorer. Today's guest is an anthropologist. She's an environmentalist and a researcher who's a self-described vagabond. She crossed six continents over the course of two years before COVID, and she studied climate change, Antarctic Alaska, and socio-ecological issues. In Central America. Her name is Jordan Reedman. Jordan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for making time. Uh, I know that you recently relocated, so uh, probably a pretty big thing to do in the midst of a move. Yes, I, I almost got deported in Amsterdam, but I made it. I made it here to Germany, and I'm very excited. It's beautiful. What are you doing in Germany? Uh, I am starting my master's degree, and I'm a research assistant in the Environmental Governance Department at University of Freiburg, but my master's degree is in social sciences and is part of a global studies program where I'll research between Germany, South Africa, and India. Wow. So do they lay that all out for you like a roadmap? Do you know when you're going to each uh, country? Yes, I do know where I'm going to each country, but you do have the option to choose between a couple of other locations. So I could have also gone to Argentina or Thailand. Um, but my research is a little bit more relevant, I believe, in the locations that I chose. But it's the, the master's degree is in conjunction with the partner universities internationally. Okay, so let's talk about that. Um, let's talk about anthropology. How does one become an anthropologist? So there are a couple of different definitions, I believe, of what defines an anthropologist. But generally, I would say it is somebody who studies and practices the study of anthropology. So some people would say that students of anthropology are anthropologists. Some people would say you need to be um, you know, a PhD professor. But I think that similar to um, people like philosophers, anthropologists tend to have a unique worldview and outlook that uh, I think that anybody who has spent significant amounts of time in the field of anthropology and researching in it, studying it tends to bring something to the table that's a little bit different that it's, you know, it's unique to anthropology. So I am, I describe myself as an anthropologist, one, because I have a degree in anthropology, because I have had previous research jobs in um, sort of environmental anthropology, and because what I have taken from those is what I can take into the future of my academic and professional career, even if it's not explicitly, you know, a master's degree or a PhD in anthropology. Do you feel like in the world of academia, there is this sort of uh, stigma that you can't call yourself a this or a that unless you have a specific PhD in this or that? Probably, yeah. I think that there's a lot of... Uh, I don't know, there's kind of a battle between, you know, wanting to reserve titles for people who are qualified to hold them so that you can have high quality research from people who, you know, are in a position to actually have a credible voice, while you also don't want it to be inaccessible and something that's reserved for elites or um, 
there's a lot of like imposter syndrome that I think people feel going into graduate degrees because there's so much of that. You can't call yourself this or this or this, but I mean, I don't know. We're all, (laughs) I've spoken to people who've been in anthropology for 60 years too, who have also still felt the imposter syndrome of not knowing whether or not they can call themselves an expert in a field that they've dedicated their entire lives to. And then also people who've dedicated their entire life to something and still kind of probably shouldn't talk about it. (laughs) So I don't know. It's That's fair. Yeah. I mean, it just, I just asked that as a journalist who battled imposter syndrome for a long time because I never got a journalism degree. Um, I took journalism classes, but I got so distracted by trying to be an Egyptologist and all kinds of stupid things um, on the way to where I got that I never like went the traditional academic route. But since we have you, I'm curious because you do know that world. And I feel also for some listeners, we hear the term research, right? And research feels like this intangible thing that's just out in the world and like scientists do research. And then we base society around research. But what the hell is research? And I ask that sincerely. When you go out and learn something, what happens to all the information you gather? What happens to what you learn? So research can kind of be vague. I I would say that there are definitely, there's definitely more than one way to describe what research is. Um, I'd say that once your profession is research, then there are a lot more regulations around what is actually considered research because it has to do with, you know, where your sources are coming from, whether or not those are credible. Are they like, can you cite an APA or not? That's kind of, if it's, if, if you can't cite an APA, then it's probably not going to be considered credible research for different uh, fields of study, which is like the field that I'm in. I, oh my gosh, on my last research job, if I were to cite something and something I wanted to submit for publication that wasn't, uh, anyway, <laughs> there is definitely, no, 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 no. The- <laughs> I mean, there's definitely like an academic side to research where it's very formal and it's very strict. And sometimes if you're, you know, methodology, the, the way that you went through gathering your actual research content isn't up to the standards of the potential publisher. You have to go back and redo all of the research through a different avenue so that you can like cite it more accurately. And it's more sure. um, something that can be replicated if people wanted to try and find more information on this research or continue researching in this area. There's a whole system to it, but there is also definitely an informal side to research. You know, you can read a book and I'm not going to have academic credits for reading books on environmental philosophy as part of my master's degree, but that is a sort of, that's a sort of research as well, you know? Before we dive into today's adventure with Jordan and Ernest, I want to take a quick break to talk to you about Parker Prince. Before I was traveling the world, I was actually a t-shirt designer. I was sweating it out at Parker Prince, designing t-shirts, working one-on-one with customers, and trying to give them the absolute best service in the industry. And though I haven't worked there in a couple of years now, I do speak from firsthand experience when I tell you that Parker Prince still giving people the best customer service on the planet. When you order t-shirts with Parker Prints, there's none of that anonymous corporate runaround. You don't have to fill out forms on a crazy website. You don't have to even know how to design anything. That's because their family takes care of you. Whether that's Skylar in the art department, Catherine in production, or Kathy at the top of the totem pole. Parker Prints is the place to go when your business, group, or events need custom shirts. When you make that call, you're getting the best prices and the best customer service on the planet. You can learn more about Parker Prints at parkerprintsonline.com or visit them on Facebook and Instagram at Parker Prints. Trust me, I know, not only have I been an intimate part of their process, but I'm still ordering shirts from them today. Uh, All right. So Jordan, today we want to get into a personal experience you had um, where you actually went out into the field for an extended time in our neighbor to the south in Mexico. 
Mexico is not a country that we have covered on the Get Lost podcast. So you are going to break the ice. And what I want you to do is just take us on a journey. Tell us how you got there and what you were doing, what you experienced. So I went to the state of Guanajuato in Mexico, which is a central state in Mexico. I find that a lot of uh, people from the U.S. when I went there and I I was telling them that I I got an apartment there and everything and I was essentially moving there, asked me, what beach are you going to be closest to? But I have to say that I would say that I think that the part of Mexico that has been closest to my heart is the heart of Mexico, the inland, uh, really historical areas. So I lived in the city of San Miguel de Allende, which is a pretty uh, gentrified area. It is a beautiful, beautiful city. I don't think I've ever been anywhere that has had culture that is so rich. Uh, it's, It's the type of place that allows you to indulge in every sense that you have to the the fullest extent the food is probably the best i've had anywhere in the world there are so many regional dishes that just will bring you to tears and there there's this there's this center area of town el jardin and there's this beautiful cathedral that's lit up every night it's just stunning and pretty much every night that i walked through there there'd be mariachi bands and people are dancing and singing and taking shots at the bars surrounding it um there's there's a culture around celebrating life in Mexico that I have found to be so moving to me and something that we lack as being a workaholic type of Americans. Um, So do you feel like this is a more authentic place to visit than, than say uh, an all inclusive resort in Tulum or Cancun or something like that? (laughs) The, The question of authenticity is tricky, but from my experience, I would say that, Pretty much any experience outside of an all-inclusive resort is going to be more authentic. And again, I did live in a pretty gentrified part of, of Mexico. That state, though, generally is is just so... I, I cannot stress enough that I think everyone should go to, to Guanajuato before they die. It's I mean, it's also such an artistic city. Like, every corner has an art gallery, and it's just... Everything is so beautiful. Every smell, every sight. The buildings are just so colorful. There are flowers everywhere. The weather is incredible. People are really kind. The food's amazing. Uh, But as any city does, especially ones that are heavily gentrified, there are a lot of problems that exist just outside of that beautiful uh, colonial-style historic downtown area. I think that... um, Sure. There's a really, really significant portion of the population in the San Miguel de Allende area that is living in in poverty or extreme poverty, and they live seriously walking distance from the center of the city where everything is just glowing, you know? So while you were there, were you able to discover how that situation developed um, so we talk about gentrification, it happens everywhere. Were these people displaced or has this societal structure been in place for so long that it's generational? Uh, I would definitely say it's a little bit of both. As with any colonial city, I mean, it's a colonial city. It's, it's Spanish style. It's Spanish and um, like indigenous style. So that, that sort of gentrification in that respect goes back to the beginning of the city. But now the gentrification is a lot more people moving to these to this city from the United States so it's a lot of of white Americans especially retirees moving there which in itself isn't necessarily um, a problem but people people go looking for that authentic experience so yeah when they go looking for that authentic experience they move into neighborhoods that have had the same families living in them for generations right but they come bringing their American retiree currency. So the prices of these homes in these communities that people, native people have lived in forever start to skyrocket because now there's a demand for people searching for authenticity who have the money to pay a higher amount for these homes. So then people get pushed out who are the ones who are bringing the value to the neighborhoods in the first place, but 
there, there's no space for them. There's nowhere left for them to go because the authentic homes become really sought after. And then what's left, it's, it, you know, it's the inauthentic homes, which are obviously way out of their price range because those are designed for the expats, the immigrants. Um, yeah. 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 The modern architecture, the... Um so, so give me an idea, because when I think about uh, American housing, for instance, I think about suburbs and like row and row of house that looks the same after the same after the same. Is this situation playing out down there as well? Um, it's difficult to say. I didn't have a car when I was there, and I definitely can't speak for the entire I can only speak to my experience in the city, but from what I experienced in the walkable parts of it, I mean, it's not, it doesn't look like American suburbia by any means. You know, it's, you still have the very, uh, the, the styles of the homes that people are moving into are very relevant to the area. You know, they are like the Spanish style, Mexican style homes. They have the the courtyards in the middle they're all colorful they're they're built really beautifully in mexican style but yeah they're they're in the nicest areas of town they're next to the nicest shops they are yeah next to the big grocery stores where you can get access to all kinds of foods imported from everywhere in that sense it is similar to suburbia i see i see so i, I want to talk to you a little bit about the the culinary issues uh, down there and like bridging that gap uh, between the haves and the have-nots but before we get into that i want to really experience this state a little more can you take us uh, out of the city and into uh, an adventure that you had while you were there oh gosh there's so many to choose from but yeah um i mean knowing you you were almost uh swallowed by a lava pit or something Well, I, I was a little bit more mild in my adventures, I think, in that in that part of Mexico. Um, going down to Chiapas, and that's a whole other story. That place is designed for adventurers. But I would say that um, some of the most beautiful things that I did in in that part of Mexico, the climate is really similar to to Tuscany, actually. So there are a lot of really gorgeous, like, olive groves and... Wow, really? Yeah, yeah, they're beautiful. That is surprising. Yeah, wineries. I had some of the best wine, the best olive oil anywhere in the world uh, in that that city, just outside of it. I went on, like, an olive oil tour, and it was, oh my gosh, it was incredible. We went through and tasted all of the different, like, infused or flavored olive oils. Like, you could tell there was basil olive oil, there was garlic, there was... I think one was bacon, and then the, the people who operated this tour had like salads laid out for us and plain pastas, and then we just like flavored them all with the olive oils and oh, the, it, was just, it was just stunning. It was it's so so. First of all, I need the bacon <laughs> olive oil, and, and I need it right now. I, I know. Second, <laughs> how, how does one get on an olive oil tour? Um, I think that I was looking up more things to do in that area that were kind of atypical for for most tourists. Um, I think that a lot of tourists tend to stick within the city because it's a beautiful city and there's there's so much to do within it. But I was looking at more just excursions generally to take. I wanted to see a lot more of the area that I was living in than I had before, especially because I'd been to this city before and I wanted to do things that I hadn't done. So that's when I found all the wineries that's when i found the olive grove i went on also a really really awesome tour of some ruins uh, like a pyramid that exists really close to the city as well and it's i mean those are wait 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 you you drop bacon olive oil before you drop ruined pyramid <laughs> i'm a foodie what can i say i was really excited about the bacon olive oil also because it's vegan so if you miss the flavor of bacon and you aren't one to eat bacon I cannot recommend bacon olive oil enough. <laughs> it's excellent. I was pretty fascinated by the olive oil experience, but I'm afraid ruins <laughs> always take precedent on the Get Lost podcast. Tell us about these ruins, please. Oh, man. Um, what, so they were from some really ancient civilization that it, it was a, it was like a smaller one that you don't really typically hear about in 
and when you're talking in America, at least about Mexican indigenous history, it's not um, like Mayan or Aztec or anything like that. It was a smaller group, but that was that was incredible. It was there. It's on like a private piece of land, and they only allow a certain number of people in and off of the land um, right. every day. So it, they they keep it really really well preserved. I remember walking up to it. There were just like horses running around everywhere. Just beautiful rolling hills. Again, it, it looks like Tuscany. It's incredible. Um, and then you come up on these ruins that are pyramids, and they're the tiered kinds, which I'm sure that a lot of people are familiar with. Not like Egypt, but like you know Mexico City, like yes, the tiered kinds of yeah. Um, and those are always astounding to me that when you hear people, when you hear archaeologists who have really spent their lives excavating these sites and the information that they're able to gather about the way that people lived their lives in those locations, it's always just amazing. Especially when you look at the construction of the pyramids, the type of um, knowledge that these people would have had to have of mathematics, for example. I sure. <laughs> like significantly better than me. And I went to formal schooling for, you know, however many years I've been in school now. I don't know, a lot. <laughs> and their understanding of things like that to be able to orient pyramids around, you know, the sun and moon and the ways that they rise and fall during the different seasons and the stars. Oh, it's, it's just incredible. It's amazing. There's a season two episode that you guys can look up with uh, Expedition Unknown's Josh Gates, where we go to El Mirador. And that's a, a really strong example of a city uh, roughly the size of Los Angeles that's full of ruins and pyramids. And only a, a tiny fraction of that has been excavated. But I think there's a lot of value in sites like the ones you're talking about because they are accessible to tourists. And let's face it, if you're listening to this show, I mean, you don't have to be a researcher or, or an explorer or whatever. Um, you just have to have that thirst for curiosity, right? You have to have that spark in you to go experience something new. So uh, I just want to contrast your experience with Josh's and then say I've been to a site in Belize called uh, Sunan Tunich. I might be botching that because it's been two years since I went, but uh, that site is a curated complex. There's a guy running around with a weed eater. I mean, <laughs> you know, you, you can't get more safe than that. Uh, you don't worry about snakes. You don't worry about people coming out of the woods with machetes and shit. Um, you just go and you experience these these pyramids. So like you're talking about, what inspired you about that when you're hearing stories about this complex and you're um, you're able to be right there like and able to touch this stone that's perhaps a thousand years old what does that feel like oh my gosh and i mean so much more than a thousand years old you know i think that they said that one of the like the mummified it was, I don't remember what the word was for like their, their leader, but they had carried the body of their leader to this site that they had relocated to that was 14,000 years old. 14,000 years old? I, I could be wrong, but I, I feel like I remember that number because I was shocked. Um, but the thing that... That would be incredibly <laughs> shocking. That's like three times older than the pyramids in Egypt. It just, just ancient. Um that, again, yeah. that could be slightly off, but it was old. <laughs> Just know that it was really old. But I think that the thing that always stands out to me in places like that is I think about how these were these were human beings. You know, I think it's really easy to dissociate people who lived in the distant past and also people who will live in the distant future, which is a common problem we see with environmental activism is people dissociate from future people. But... These yeah. were just human beings. They, they were human beings. They lived their lives perhaps really differently than you and I do, but also really similarly. And I think about like all these pathways that I'm walking around, these walls that I'm touching, like somebody so, so long ago, some girl probably my age was sitting here and she was probably four feet tall as people were back then around four feet tall. 
And like mm-hmm. somebody had, you know, their first kiss somewhere in this pyramid probably, or somebody, you know, I don't know what their ceremonies were, if they had anything similar to marriage or, but you know, people were, people were going through their whole lives in this area that I'm getting to walk through. They, they were falling in love, they were working, they were having families, they were learning, going to school, they were looking at the stars. And that's just, that's just so crazy to me. And I wish that those people could see the life, the world that I come from now to go and see yeah. the way that they lived. They, I mean, they'd be so shocked, right, to see massive metropolitan areas. But I always think that that's really exciting to sort of relate to the people who lived back then as if rather than them coming from a different time, it's almost just like they were born in a different place, which is a different era than me. But that's what you I know, think about. This is, this is interesting to talk to an anthropologist about something like this because earlier in the year we had on um, an archaeologist. And so she's coming at this site in Oman from that perspective of what they constructed and like the tools that they used and things of that nature. But you bring a really romanticized idea of their life into the present, which is kind of cool because you're walking these ruins and you're not thinking about how they built them. You're thinking about what they did here. Yeah. How, how do they feel? Like what was this person thinking when they were walking around? Were they sitting there thinking the things that I think when I'm walking down this path? Are they they thinking, wow, those flowers look really nice today. The weather is so great, you know, are like, and I am, they must have been to some extent. They must've been thinking about things like the weather, thinking about what they're going to eat later. Um, They probably had a better idea, obviously with their (laughs) probably much smaller pool of food resources than I currently have, but yeah, I, I I think that that's also something that I've come to love about when I have studied things like archaeology and bioarchaeology in particular, where you can learn unbelievable things. You can you can gain so much insight from somebody's skeletal remains, like so much insight. It's incredible. But it's it's really easy, I think, when you're looking at people from the past to see the lack of technology that they had compared to what we have today and think that maybe they didn't have that because they weren't as smart or they were just less advanced. They were less developed people, but they weren't. Like if I were born in the year that these people were born in, I probably would have been able to do at, at most what they could do during that time period. People did what they could with those resources and it's, Again, it's so easy to take like a pejorative view on people of the past rather than looking at them as people like you and I who were just born in a different time, born in a different as place. As equals. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a good point because you could take probably an iPad if you had a DeLorean and all the parts worked <laughs> and stuff. Um, you know, you could hit 88 miles an hour and pop yourself uh, back then and probably... Um, Within a matter of time, you could teach everybody, you know, how to use all the technology we have today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's just magically assume the infrastructure for all that shit works. So <laughs> it, it, I, I think you're right. Um, and that's a very cool thing to think about as a tourist is, you know, when you go to a site like this, I hope that you take time not only to get your, uh, you know, shit for Instagram, but really think about why you're there. You're not just there to get likes. You're not just there to get views on your story. Uh, you're there to learn something and to come away from that experience, whether it's a week in a location or an hour in a location, you're there to come back with just one more piece of your personal puzzle. There's so much insight to learn from people who Everybody can teach you something, I like to think. You could be the smartest person in the world, but everybody can teach you something that you don't know. And I think that that also stands so much for people of the past. I am probably biased as an anthropologist, but there's so much to learn from that and so much to gain from just putting yourself in the shoes of people who lived in the places that that you're visiting for their historical value. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, and I almost feel like in a way, uh, walking in their footsteps really helps you connect to people 
of the past. But today we want to walk in your footsteps. So let's get away from the pyramid and let's, let's walk away from it and get in the, the Jeep or whatever you use to get out there and then take us on a journey back to town. There was so much greenery, like the whole place was just, I think that one of the most beautiful places I've ever driven through is the countryside of central Mexico. It's just, it's just, you know, rolling hills and so much, so many beautiful plains and like livestock walking around and it's, it's just always so stunning. And when you go back into town, the, you know, you have like you got off of the main highway and then eventually you're on cobblestone streets and there are all these colorful buildings all around you and you're cramming your car through these little tiny alleyways and there's people walking around and there's street vendors selling all kinds of different things and like my favorite thing was when I was going back to the place that I lived um, there was this guy who sold the best the best tamales on the street corner and they were oh Oh man, they were right. so good. <laughs> they were so wait, good. Wait, was there an ancient ruin hidden behind his tamale stand? Or <laughs> just want to make sure they were that special. You, I wouldn't even have. They were so special that I probably wouldn't have noticed. <laughs> there were ancient ruins behind them. I was, I was too focused on the tamales. But so, how did you, how did you find this guy? Tell us about it. Oh, I mean, he was right by the place that I lived. I lived in the in the top story of a of a theater, actually in town okay um and it was oh my gosh it was probably my favorite place i will ever live i honestly i can't imagine that i'll that i'll top it it was just the all of the walls of my apartment there were all glass and if if anyone wants to google image search uh, san miguel de allende which is with a double l so it's like if you don't speak spanish allende yeah, two L's. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it is just striking the the view of the city with the cathedrals coming up and the colorful buildings and the, the plants and the flowers is just so stunning. And my apartment was on this hillside in, in a, the, a neighborhood called San, San Rafael. And I was in the top story of it. And so I had the best view of the whole city, I swear. It was so stunning. And it would be, it'd be so cool because the sun would set and the lights from the cathedrals would come on and the whole place would just light up, it would just glow. It's like in... Um, Mm, uh, Coco, Coco. Okay, <laughs> whenever I, don't I me, so. <laughs> it was so it's a great movie. But whenever I would show people, whenever I would show people photos of the city, everyone would say, "Oh my gosh, it's like Coco," and it totally is like Coco. Like it's it's just so gorgeous. And like I said, the, the culture around celebrating life in Mexico is so much so much better in my experience than it has been in the US for me. And so, so often I'd be like going to sleep and I'd leave all the curtains open because it's a beautiful view obviously and then there'd just be fireworks coming up over wow. the city. And I also was there during the rainy season. So, so often there'd be like these just monstrous thunderstorms that would flood the, all the streets. And, you know, I lived on a hill so like all with the, the cobblestone and the old construction of the city, it, it got really, really flooded. But it would just be so insane to watch these storms roll in over this city that's just glowing, right? With the lightning strikes coming down on it. It was a, a yeah. picture for sure. Did you ever think, wow, this maybe this is what it was like to be on top of those pyramids back in the day? <laughs> but I, I didn't think about it at the time because I was focused on like the city architecture. But you know, I bet that at the time, in in those cities with the pyramids, they were they could have been looking out and they would have thought equally as much. This is the architecture of my city, and my idea of a city is obviously going to be different than theirs was. But yeah. yeah. So let's talk about like living abroad long term because you've said before that when you go out in the field, although you're based in the U.S., you like to spend at least six months on the road. Um, but you're in Mexico for uh, not six months, but a pretty long amount of time, right? I was in Mexico for, I think I spent four full months in Mexico, I want to say. Yeah. So in my book, that's enough to say, yes, you lived somewhere. Like when I think three months for me is a cutoff, but I guess everyone can make their own opinion. <laughs> I um, paid rent. So. How do you, 
Yeah, you paid rent. Okay, so that counts. <laughs> In fact, that's the bottom line. Just cut it there. If you paid rent, you live there. <laughs> How do you make that work with life at home? Um, well, to be honest, I didn't really have a lot of... Uh, I don't know, you'd have to define what you mean by life at home because at the time I was doing all of my studies and work completely remotely. And I I think the part of the reason actually why it has been so easy for me to live between semi-nomadically and fully nomadically is because I have never felt overwhelmingly attached to any location and felt that I had a really significant home base anywhere in the US. So right. it's, it was always pretty easy for me to just say, okay, my home is on my back. My home is wherever I am, whatever I can fit into this backpack that I can carry around. Because there wasn't yeah. ever anywhere that, like if I were to go home to the U.S., would, there's not a place that I would go anyway. I would have to get a new place. Yeah. I'd be visiting someone crashing on a couch until I found somewhere. So there was, I think that makes, you know, being a quote-unquote vagabond a lot easier there's not anything that i'm leaving behind to tie me down yeah home is within home and you know i do have a base camp so to speak in memphis but i don't know that i even i don't know how much i consider that home anymore because i see the people around me that are like in their early 30s my friends my travel buddies they settle down they move to the suburbs they have kids and you don't see them other than for like somebody's birthday party and it's just not the same situation so the the things that made home home feel different yes i still can go to the same bars i used to go to i still have the same neighborhood but everything around me changes and i think that goes back to your point about u.s culture versus culture in other countries there's no blanket of what culture in other countries means, but in your opinion, what is American culture? Like, what is U.S. culture? I find that a lot of people who haven't done a ton of international travel like to say that there is no American culture, but I think that the longer you spend abroad, the more you realize how much there is in American culture because there are things that you miss. You notice what you don't have in other places and that's what you learn to discover is your own home culture. Um, yeah. There's a lot of things. I mean, the things that I notice regularly, honestly, <laughs> again, I'm, I'm a foodie. I notice portion sizes. <laughs> I miss American All portion right. sizes so much <laughs> when I travel. And MSG. I'm not going to lie to you. I miss MSG. <laughs> a lot of chemically things in foods even as a really healthy eater that sometimes you just crave it when you're abroad and places like yeah. i am right now here in europe they're like we refuse to put that in food it's not edible yeah. <laughs> but outside of that um i don't know i also when i think of american culture and the things that i miss about it outside of things like food um a lot of it is social culture. A lot of other places that I have been to, people are not nearly as um, extroverted, I would say, or friendly, but not not to say that they're not nice. It's just you don't really, in places that I have been, you don't have girls walking up to other girls in a grocery store to tell her that she likes her shirt or she likes her shoes. And I do that all the time. And I know that when I do that in other countries, people kind of like are a little bit <laughs> They're like, what are you, don't, don't touch me. Yeah, yeah. And don't especially when you're talking about the opposite sex too. I mean, I, I compliment people all the time in the US, all the time where I'll just make conversation with a person sitting next to me in the grocery store. But, you know, if you mm -hmm. do that in other places, it's kind of seen as like maybe you're hitting on them or yeah something. So I, I very much tend to miss the extroverted, talkative, social dynamic that Americans have cultivated. Um, yeah. We also tend to, we have a different sort of emphasis around wellness than other places do. I think that we have one that's very similar to places like Australia, which 
people will probably, I'm sure lots of people will disagree with me on this front. I know that a lot of we, we actually have, have a lot of <laughs> listeners in Australia, so I'm super curious about this. Well, okay, so to put it concisely, you don't see people drinking green things in most countries around the world. People, this idea of like superfoods and like uh, a lot of like fitness outside of like lifestyle type of things like you know Europeans walk everywhere a lot more often they do probably they, they or at least they Europeans that I've talked to have said that their idea of fitness revolves around a lot more around activities like going rock climbing going hiking going you know doing water sports actual activities playing sports with your friends that require you exercise. to be in shape yeah exercise but yeah. Americans are very like I'm gonna drink superfoods and go on like a really really strict healthy diet and I'm gonna go to the gym every single day and lift weights. I remember that the last time I was in Europe for like three months, I I remember thinking it's so weird. I've seen like two gyms since I've been on this continent. I've been through 16 countries and I've seen two gyms. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the U.S., it's like every couple of neighborhoods there's a gym, you know, and they're packed all the time. I wonder if that's a response to just the massive amount of weird shit in our food. Probably. I'm sure that there's a correlation there. We have more of a need to work off <laughs> our our calories. Yeah, because, I mean, we're like most people, and, and this goes back to Mexico in a way, like when you acquire wealth, suddenly every food in the universe is at your fingertips, and... Crap food tastes good. It, that's that's the point, right? It's meant to taste good and be addictive, so you buy more of it. Right. So, you know, instead of water, maybe you're drinking Coca-Cola all the time, and then what happens? Coca-Cola is a product <laughs> that I pour on car batteries to, like, clean <laughs> the connectors. And for my whole life growing up in the South, my parents would just feed me this by the gallon. Like, here's some Coca-Cola for soccer practice, son. And, you know, you're running wind sprints. All of a sudden, your leg just stops working. Why? I don't know. Drink some more Coke. You'll probably feel better. Yeah. And I mean, so you're talking about, you know, accessibility of a variety of foods, right? But that's another thing. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. American grocery stores. Side note top-notch we have so much variety they're huge american grocery stores are massive yeah. compared to the places but anyway yeah i mean coca-cola in the u.s for one is worse than it is in other places but um yeah when, when you're talking about accessibility of foods as soon as you do have access to foods in so many places the types of foods that you do have access to are going to be the foods that are the worst for you and when you're coming from, you know, multiple generations of, of poverty, which often comes from having, being, being malnourished, yeah. then people don't have any, any concept really of nutrition education and how to break that cycle through increasing nutrition. So even when you do have the capacity to feed maybe your kids healthier products, it's really difficult if you don't know what that is. If you've never heard of the word protein before, how are you supposed to have any means of, of breaking that cycle and improving the health of your family? Which is yeah. something that we and saw so, a lot of in Mexico, actually. I, I, I did some I did some volunteering for a nonprofit down there called Feed the Hungry San Miguel, which okay. um, the, the state that I lived in had a couple of problems that overlapped and seemed like they were on opposite ends of the spectrum, but they're actually not. And this is something that when I was taking a lot of my anthropology, my undergraduate anthropology degree was oriented around food culture. And this is okay. something that we call the double burden of malnutrition. So okay. you will oftentimes have both stunted malnourishment in the household and obesity malnourishment in the household because you have, um, like I was saying, once you have access to foods financially, oftentimes the only kinds of foods you have access to are really, really poor quality. They have excessive macronutrients, so they have excessive carbohydrates and they have excessive fats and proteins, but they're really lacking in things like vitamin A, vitamin D, micronutrients. And you're getting enough calories, but they aren't doing anything for you. So what happens with this, this the way that this becomes a cycle is that 
children are are become malnourished, right? And then they start falling asleep in school because obviously nutrition plays a massive role in your ability to have energy and focus and keep your your brain awake, especially when your brain is still developing, your brain and body are still developing. So they start falling asleep in school. Their grades start slacking. Um, People also in these families oftentimes don't have a lot of money, so they're incentivized to pull their kids out of school, especially if they're not doing well, to have them work so that they can help provide money for their family to buy food. Right, right, right. A solution that this nonprofit came up with to help end this cycle. Oh, sorry, I should. The the result of this of the children being malnourished, they stunt. They're more prone to physical injury. As soon as they do have the money from working to buy foods, they have no concept of nutrition education. They start buying unhealthy foods. They get diabetes. They end up, you know, losing their limbs, which we, you saw a ton of where I lived. A ton of it. You saw you saw people who were super super stunted and malnourished people who were missing limbs from diabetes, it was devastating. And then, you know, you're unable to work. You are unable to, uh, you know, sex education is also not its finest in most parts of the world. Um, Options for preventing unwanted pregnancies. You end up having multiple additional children who are born in this cycle of poverty, have to go to work because you're disabled, can't pay attention in school because they're malnourished it continues you are trapped I'm quiet because i'm just i'm just kind of putting this wheel together in my mind um because people missing limbs from diabetes is that's a pretty big deal and, and even in the south in america where diabetes is absolutely rampant um i mean my dad had it in my family i have to watch what i do what i eat um but to think about people that are missing limbs just because of a nutrition thing, um, that's, that's pretty damn tough, you know? And it's not just a nutrition thing. It's an education thing. But it's something that's not very prevalent in, in you know, public education, especially in other places. And oftentimes when it is, it's also outdated information. So mm-hmm. what this nonprofit did, which was really – it's – really incredible the results that they've seen they started providing nutritious meals for breakfast and lunch at the public schools like a a ton of public schools in in all the little areas surrounding the city so what What, what do you think the population is just offhand um it's about 60,000 people a little less than that Okay, all right. So, so sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Pick up, pick back up where you were. Um, so they provide... What the nonprofit did. Yeah, so, so they provide uh, nutritious meals to local public schools, to, especially mm-hmm. in areas where people tend to have the lowest of income, the areas that are most impoverished. And mm-hmm. these nutritious meals are totally for free. And... What this does is it incentivizes families to send their kids to school because when they send their kids to school, their kids are getting two meals a day. And if they aren't sending their kids to school, then their kids aren't being fed. So they they mitigate the reasoning behind taking your kid out of school to work to buy food because maybe if you send your kid to school, that's going to be the only meal that they get during the day, right? So attendance start attendance starts increasing a lot, and this is also really significant for gender issues because typically, if parents are going to pull one child out of school, it's going to be the girls. So you see not only an increase generally in child attendance in schools, but you see an increase in girls attending schools, which is huge. And in addition to them attending schools, their grades start to improve because they're actually being fed adequate nutrition. And the thing that is the most groundbreaking about all of this is not only that they are providing them the meals, the kids are going to school, but they also provide free nutrition classes for the parents in the community and for the the kids. So in the schools, they start addressing it and they have what we used to have, we used to be taught with like a food pyramid, but now it's like what my plate should look like. And it's like a little circle of plate and what percentage of it should be 
you know, protein and carbohydrates and vegetables and whatnot. And that makes a lot more sense than a pyramid. <laughs> I think so too. But so what you see is these kids start like getting their plates from their parents and they're saying, mom, where are my vegetables? Because they were taught in school that there's significance in having a balanced meal and that is massive and, and it's really what's exciting too is that they they're creating jobs they're doing this they're hiring nutritionists to come on they're hiring local nutritionists to come and create the menus for these schools to come and teach these classes to the families and that alone to teaching people about nutrition and giving them reasons to go to school for nutrition is completely breaking this cycle of poverty so when you look at sort of the anthropological uh, record of human history, do you find correlations between food supply and food scarcity and the rise and fall of complete civilizations? Oh, def definitely. Yeah, you can, it's, especially in bioarchaeology, you can see exactly what people were eating and then you can compare that with, you know, the ages at which people died. It's, yes, it's, it's like very significant. The, the types of foods that people eat have a direct correlation with like how long they live, their their vulnerability to different types of diseases, um, but there are also external things to consider, right? You know, people who are eating like lower trophic level proteins, for example, probably are from lower classes. They may have been living in poor conditions, had more dangerous jobs. So there's a lot of things you can't necessarily account for. All kinds of variables that people are dead, you can't ask them. And then there's also sure. um, I can't think of the phrase right now, but there's the fact that these people are dead. So how healthy could this person really have been because they died? So, but yes, yeah, it's, it's through and through the development of people has been really heavily correlated with nutrition. What's also, oh, this is, oh, I love this topic. This is extra fun for me. Okay. All right. Go <laughs> so ahead. the topic of um, omnivorousness has been really yeah. significant uh, in discussing nutrition because a lot of people like to, if you ever hear this, now you'll know that you can dispel this myth. People like to say that eating meat um, caused a significant increase in, in brain size and complexity in okay. early okay. humans. That's not accurate. So what is really interesting is that if you look at the largest species of animals, they tend to be mostly herbivorous. You look at animals like cows, gorillas. Mm -hmm. Cows, for example, have like, I think, five stomachs. And the reason why is because um, they do. chlorophyll in plants is right. really difficult to digest. So you have to have a really big body to store five stomachs to be able to digest really fibrous plant materials like that. So right. humans, way back in the day, you know, not even technically humans yet, uh, we're eating a lot of really heavily fibrous plant materials and digestion takes a lot of energy, like a lot of energy. And your brain uses like over 90% of your calories is like in your brain. It's that, that's fascinating. So I what am I doing with all this running and work? Like, why am I working out? That's just just read more. Could be off a little bit, but like it's, uh, let me, let me double check that actually. But I'm pretty sure I remember it being a really crazy high stat. I feel like I would be in way better shape or maybe I'm just super dumb. Okay. No. Okay. So it's, it's not like 90 plus percent, but it's okay. So it, your brain is 2% of your body weight and it accounts for around 20% of your body's, body's energy use. So okay. that's also the, because we have big brains, right? We have really large cranial capacities, especially relative to our body size. So when yeah. you are um, having to digest when you're having to use all of your energy on digestion because the foods you're eating are so fibrous, there's not a lot left over to be used on developing your brain. And this is called the expensive tissue theory. Your brain is expensive tissue. It takes a lot of energy to power your brain. 
So if you don't right. have the, the capacity to power it, it's all going to go toward digestion. Your brain's going to be small. So then humans started eating foods that were less fibrous, which was came from two different things. It came from cooking plants. Cooking was a massive development in human history because it took down the fiber of plants. And so the tissue of the expensive tissue had you had calories left over. There's energy left over to allocate towards expensive tissue like brain development. And also we started eating less nutrient dense, less fibrous materials like animals. So cooking combined with some clusters of humans also eating animals. Stir fry. Stir fry. <laughs> exactly. You're describing stir fry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so stir, stir fry, fry changed the course of humanity. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, once we, once we stopped having to allocate all of our energy towards digestion, we had actual brain development. The energy could be put elsewhere. So then creative capacity, brains, huge huge brains like over like really quickly after that the brain development just skyrocketed which i think that's really interesting (laughs) there is a book that is called omnivorousness it might be a chapter in a book omnivorousness but that is something that if you're interested in this topic it is really detailed and will explain it much better than i just did on a whim but it's it's a topic that's so great Sounds like an MTV show with Rob Deerdick or something, but instead of just antics, he's eating everything. It's it's such an exciting topic, especially because I, don't th- I think people tend to not understand what it means to be an omnivore, which doesn't mean... I think people, people think that omnivore means to be healthy, you eat animal and plant products. But it actually just has to do with your ability to digest and use these foods as energies. So... As, as energy, sorry. Um, so being an omnivore, humans are part of what's called a general niche, which means, or niche, I've heard it pronounced a lot of different ways, and I haven't decided which way I actually think is correct yet. I use niche because it sounds French and fancy. <laughs> I also like to use niche, but I, yeah. okay, so humans are part of what's called a, a general niche, which means that we can survive in a really wide variety of climates and environments generally, and off of a really wide variety of food products. So that means that if we are in a place where there is nothing available to us but like meat and seeds, we can survive. Not in, not in ideal health, but we can survive. And if we are in a place that has nothing but fruits and root vegetables and beans, we can also survive. So omnivorousness just means that we have a lot of options. Not that we necessarily need all of the options, but we can survive in environments with very limited food sources, whether they are just plant-based or mostly animal-based. And the central part of Mexico is really a place with all of those options on the table, quite literally. Yeah, Um, (laughs) yes. So as we kind of wind down here, it's been... It's been a few years since you were down there and you told me previously that it's a place that you think about a lot um, when you're traveling. What are your final thoughts on that chapter of your life? I would happily die there. It's so stunning. When I think about my favorite places that I have ever been, that is definitely in the top three. It rotates between like first, second, and third all the time, but it's such a beautiful, beautiful part of the world. It is such a rich culture that I think Americans, we tend to take advantage of being neighbors with such a magical and complex, incredible country that is so different from our, our own culture in so many ways. Yeah. But it is just astounding. And I, I, I don't typically like to go back places very many times because there's so much to see. And I cannot wait to go back there again. It's amazing. I think that's that's fantastic. Guys, you can follow Jordan on Instagram and connect with her at Jordan the Explorer, which is an awesome Instagram handle. 
Thanks. Very I was, jealous of that. I was pretty proud of it. <laughs> I I thought about being Joe the Explorer. I, I don't know if he's out there, but if he is, <laughs> man. The Get Lost Podcast is a production of Sold Outside Exploration Company. Follow us on Instagram at Get Lost Podcast to win cool prizes like an autographed copy of Green Lights from Matthew McConaughey.